Hello and welcome to the Daily Reprieve Podcast, where the sexaholic or sex addict can find experience, strength, and hope from those that have traveled this road ahead of us. This episode is produced in the spirit of the 12th step to carry the message to other sexaholics. Every effort has been made to remove full names of the speakers in these recordings. This is done in order to follow the 11th tradition regarding anonymity at the level of press, radio, television, and film. This podcast is self-supporting through contributions. If you enjoy listening to this podcast and would like to support The Daily Reprieve, please do so by going to GoFundMe.com, search for The Daily Reprieve, and click on Donate Now. Without further ado, please enjoy today's Daily Reprieve. Nashville, Tennessee, and I've been sexually sober 31 years in about a month, a little over a month, 31 years. Uh, March 8th, 1984, one day at a time. And uh, if you think this is going to be easy, it's not. Because uh, I pray before I talk, and if I'm not going to be honest, not going to work, and I'm going to tell you my story in a few minutes, that I have never felt so much shame in one room like I'm feeling today. I've been brushing it off, sitting here, just brushing it off. I just can't imagine the amount of shame energy in this room. So I'm going to ask you all to take some deep breaths in and out. Even more. This, I'm not going to be able to keep talking here if the shame level doesn't go down. I'm going to ask this all to stand up And say, I am a good and worthwhile human being worthy of recovery today. I am a good and worthwhile human being worthy of recovery today. And some of you heard this Sunday, but I didn't feel the shame Sunday like I'm feeling today. One more time. I am I'm a good and worthwhile being worthy of recovery today. I want us to open the door and put it on this. Bye. Get it out. Get out of the way. Get it pushed out. Over heart. Around heart. Now, sit down and If I get too explicit, leave the room. That's how we do it in Nashville. If someone gets too explicit, you raise your hand, they stop sharing, and you leave the room. So are you ready to hear? 
because we have no secret. I'm going to cross talk. I'm going to point things at. I don't give a crap. I'm li- leaving tomorrow. <laughs> what are you going to sue me? I'm going to get paid anyway. <laughs> we, won't, we won't give you your passport. So the shame experience starts outside. Mush was afraid to park his car there. Now I just shamed him, but hopefully the shame will help deep shame. Do you know what it felt like in a community the size of Nashville to be a well-known physician and psychiatrist and have to go to the places I worked at to tell them I'm starting essay. Because I was going to die. And this man came to Nashville and introduced me to essay. And in a few months, he relapsed, the man who brought me in. And he went and he found this old woman he was doing obscene phone calls with. And he went and he cut her heart out. And he went to jail for life. That's who brought me in. I don't pussyfoot around this disease. You get covered up, you get locked up, and you get sober. And if anyone thinks our crap is serene wrapped, you're wrong. And until we smell our own smell, it doesn't work. Not at our own badness, because we go into it. Into our disease. I have a screwed up brain. My hypothalamus is screwed up. My best intelligence, all my degrees, couldn't stop me from what happened in my life. Man, that energy went down. There was a guy in Nashville, he moved, and he used to say, if an old memory hits you, and you get so full of shame, and you decide to kill yourself, don't kill yourself until you go to a meeting where Harvey's at. <laughs> say what you did, and he'll tell you, Harvey, he did it at least three times. And you'll walk out of that room feeling wonderful. <laughs> There's nothing you all have done that statistically I have. I was so relieved I wasn't bad getting good that I was sick. Anymore. It was the most wonderful experience that day I got into SA to realize I'm not bad getting good. I'm sick getting I started masturbating when I was probably four or five years old. My mother would get embarrassed. I'd get all irritated. You want to talk about screwed up stuff? She'd put calamine lotion around my 
testicles using Kotex to put them up, wrapping them up. What can I tell you? It's my story. <laughs> and that's the lower lesson of the part of it. Uh, when I was about 11, my mother apparently had a fight with a neighbor. I was brought up in Brooklyn. Never knew anyone existed who weren't Jews. We moved she got upset, and one day said, I'm moving to where my family lives. And she moves us to New Jersey, and she didn't bother checking out the neighborhoods. She got into a neighborhood where I went to a school where there were about two Jews, and it was a Slavic neighborhood. And they hated Jews. And I started getting bullied. And then this group of Italian kids said, hey, we'll protect you, but you pay us for watching us masturbate. And that we loved in the head. Man, if someone cares about you, you masturbate with them. If you have a friend, you have to have sex with them. Man, woman, dog, I've had sex with dogs. I've had sex with at least 500 people. I've had intercourse with my wife. I'm a sexually abusive husband at least 8,000 times by the time I was 44. I masturbated at least 8,000 times. And if you guys haven't done this, you're written first step to see that we're not normal people. Nothing wrong with masturbation. People have been doing it for thousands of years. People have been going to prostitutes for thousands of years. But I'm not normal. I know this might not be something y'all teach here, that we're normal, we're okay. No, I'm ill. I am a cucumber who became a pickle. I will never be able to go back to being a cucumber again because I cannot handle lust like normal men. I'm, I can't handle alcohol like normal men. I'm an alcoholic recovery. I've been sober at AA for almost 32 years now, about 31 years. I won't be. This is April. Uh, in about four months, one day at a time from that. Something's wrong with me. I had a grandfather. My mother tells a story. She was walking down the street to meet her in-laws. And my Zadie, well, what happened was there was a big crowd of people. This man was lying on the floor. In, in Brooklyn, in um, Lower Manhattan, apparently, in Brooklyn. And she goes, it's my Zadie, my grandfather, drunk. I mean, I come from a line of addiction you won't believe. My 19-year-old granddaughter, she was raised in a home of two recovering parents. 
my son and his wife have about 28 years of recovery now. She was, never saw alcohol in her family. There's my, three of my four sons are recovering alcoholics with over 25, 28 years. Never saw alcohol. By the time she was 15, she was a drug addict, an alcoholic, and a sex addict. She's doing one treatment after another. And we went to visit her for a year and bankrupt my son in Utah. She was at a long-term center when she was about 16. And we sat and we, and we were in hysterics laughing, saying to her, Rebecca, you didn't have a chance. Your mother was an alcoholic. Your father's an alcoholic. Your grandfather's sex out an alcoholic. There is basically no one who doesn't know I'm an essay. Try telling it to your in-laws. Four grown sons, six marriages. I've had to tell it to six pair of in-laws. <laughs> one day, and you've heard the story think Sunday for someone who's there, maybe not. My son calls and he says, Dad, I never thought I'd find a more dysfunctional family than ours. But my wife's parents are nudists. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my in-laws were nudists. <laughs> Even when she was dressed, she looked like a nudist. And they'd always invite us to go to their nudist colonies, their country club. They had a nudist country club. And, and I explained to them, oh, I know it means so much to you. Your fellowship, wherever, you, wherever they go, they find nudist clubs. I know it means a lot, but I, I understand because I'm in this fellowship and essay. Wherever I go, I have friends and all, but I think we'll skip jokes. <laughs> My son once went to their home and he knocked on the door and the maid said, just a minute. She was a nudist too. She had to go get that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, 31 years, I can't tell you how many stories I have about all this. But getting back to that first step, inventory. Sex with men, sex with women, sex with combinations, sexually abusing my wife. One day I wrote, I had at least about 75 prostitutes, men and women. I could tell you in a certain mileage how many places I had sex. Man, I had to do an inventory to prove to me I'm not bad getting good. I'm a sick man getting well. I was having sex with my wife twice a day since she was a kid. Met her when she was 17. By the time we were married at 19, twice a day. I'd be masturbating over the years. See, I believe I have a progressive disease. It's progressive. It always gets worse if you're really a real sexaholic. Always gets worse. 
If you're a real sexaholic, some people aren't real sexaholics. They're sexual abusers. They could play here, do this, do that. They don't necessarily progress. But a real sexaholic progresses. So I went from occasionally masturbating when I was a kid to by the time I got in the program, even with all the sex I was having with other people, I needed to masturbate as a stimulant in the morning. I didn't know that when it was happening. Looking back at it, I, I see it. I had to masturbate throughout the day as a tranquilizer. And I had to masturbate at night to put me to sleep. I had a phenomenal drug. Just like cigarettes. <clears throat> Masturbation is very similar to cigarettes. If you're an addict. If you're tired, a cigarette will lift you. If you're too hyper, a cigarette will relax you. Masturbation, that's what it did for me and for many people. You know, I've seen, and I mentioned it the other day, probably at least 3,000 sexaholics in Nashville. That's a conservative figure coming into our door. So my masturbation progressed. Everything in my sexual life progressed. I needed a bigger fix and never understood what was happening to me. Never understood it. So then I had to start putting things up my butt when I masturbated. Then I needed to start using amyl nitrate when I masturbated. It had to get more and more and more. Sexual fantasies was the same thing. They just progressed. First they were just guys and gals sexual fantasy. Then African-American women came into my fantasy. And then it was orgies. And then the men popped into the orgies. And then it became the men. By the time it got through, I was sexually fantasizing about my brother. No stop. Nothing. More and more progression. My disease took me as progression to try to seduce policemen. Why would a man with intelligence try to seduce policemen? Now, I was real good with grooming. I love that word. There's a man of my talent. Okay? I groom cops. Didn't get arrested yet. Now that I'm recovering, something will happen. Why would someone do that? Because the dosage, I didn't realize it. I needed the excitement. The adrenaline, the rush. People don't understand that by the time you get to where you're going, you're already drunk. The endorphins are so massive in our brain. Just even thinking about it, That by the time we get to where we're going to act out, safe sex, all that stuff goes out of you. You're so drunk, you don't know what you're doing by that. 
I'm so glad I don't get passionate when I talk. <laughs> By the way, I'm going to give you a test question. You've heard a lot today. Did you notice any shame in my voice and my body? No. I didn't feel it. If it were there, maybe. I didn't feel it. Because my sponsor taught me that if I hadn't done everything I did, I wouldn't have been ready to come to the program. It took what it took. And what happened was seven months before I was in AA for about seven months, and um, I found a home that I've been looking for all my life. Never knew what it was I was looking for. I always felt like an outsider looking in. And I found this home. And I got to the sixth and seventh step. And I knew I had it. I couldn't let go of it. I sobered up and my acting out went down a bit. And I said I would never act out with anyone in AA. And this young guy put the push on me. I said, no, 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 a few times. Ended up going to sleep with him. A few weeks later, I was in a motel. And some guy had been having an affair with for years. By the way, the guys were much better for me on two levels. One level was that I felt I was being faithful to my wife. It wasn't with a woman. <laughs> what can I tell you? That's my thinking. <laughs> the other piece is that looking back, and I think Patrick Carn says these things, and you see the truths in your own story and history, I don't think the abuse caused my addiction I believe the abuse of those guys having me pay them when I was 11 and a half, 12 to protect me, it produced a style, a special heroin for me. See, I think young men are my heroin. Other things are my cocaine. Other things are my marijuana, <laughs> other things sexually in my liver. But young men, and how do I know that? Because towards the end, right before I came in to the program, I was taking young men, not necessarily hotels, to deserted warehouse where there was like dog shit on the floor to the same factory environment where I was abused in a wrecked building. So what you hear is not that one person's ideas are wrong about recovery or someone else's is right. You get to see where everybody's right. There are elements of everything from it. Just like in recovery, just like in recovery, 
You get it from all over. Not just only 12 steps. You get it from some therapy. You get it from here or there. Man, I was telling, we did a meeting last night, for those who are here, in financial sobriety. Man, it was stacked. This room was loaded. And they asked about, what about the envelope for therapy? It costs money. And we started to laugh and we kidded with some of that stuff. But then I shared. I shared. I went for rolfing. I went for codependency. I went for experiential couple of years group. I went for rocks, stones. I went for rebirthing. I went for EMDR. I went for uh, where they lay hands on you. You name it. If it's there, man, I'm going to try it. Because I love this freedom. This freedom is just unbelievable. And I have to be willing to get it from anywhere. Right now, I'm getting it from a sponsor. He doesn't believe in God. He's been in AA for 30 years. He doesn't believe in God. And I believe in God. But boy, am I getting a lot from him. Yes, he believes in love. And everything is either love or fear. Every motive coming from motive, love or coming from fear. So, to me, he believes in God, love. And so, here I was. One day, I was acting at a motel, and the guy I was with was smoking a joint. And I knew at that moment, the next time I would do this, I'd be smoking a joint. And that it would be the end of my AA, and I'd love to. And I was powerless. And one day I'm jogging downtown. That was my pattern. I go to an AA meeting and jog two and a half miles downtown and jog to a pornography store with seven months sober. I used to do it drunk. Now I was doing sober. And I went into a booth and some crusty, dirty, young guy kissed me on the lips. And I wasn't into kissing men. It just wasn't one of my things. Doing everything else, but not kissing men. Okay? I hope I'm not making any comment. But if I am... Me? Yeah. Oh, okay? Maybe I've heard it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> See, I still have that code. <laughs> Progress, not perfection. <laughs> But I was going to say, if I am, please leave. I'm not changing my story. It's the only story I have. <laughs> That's what my sponsor says. Never prepare for a talk. My sponsor from 25 years ago. He said, you've been preparing all your life. What are you going to prepare for? Just ask God to talk And I walked out of that pornography store. And I said, I'm hopeless. I can't stop. 
I'm hopeless. And at that moment, I decided this. I had met the guy six weeks before who told me about the program, and I thought he was crazy. But at that moment, when I got out of the store and said, I'm hopeless, I decided to divorce my wife, to leave my children, the hell with my profession, and the hell with my religion. I decided that I could not live this double life one more moment. And I had the most unbelievable relief. It was like thousands of pounds were taken from me. <coughs> I, I'll never forget that feeling. And I jogged back to the parking lot of the AA clubhouse and I run into the man who told me about us. And I ran into him and out of my mouth came. It's just, <laughs> I'm I've been sober ever since. Over 31 years. I'm right. Many, many years later, looking at what happened, I had reached my... <coughs> I'm just so grateful. So grateful. I reached the bottom. I didn't even know I had reached the bottom. <laughs> Excuse me. We are such fortunate people. We've been chosen to say it's possible. My sponsor would say, Harvey, if it works for you, it will work for a dog. <laughs> Where the light, where the torch, it can, it works. People who are suffering from this disease, we can help them know they're not bad people. They're sick people getting well, not bad people getting good. And it doesn't matter if you're Roman Catholic or Muslims, Hindus, Catholics, Protestants of every denomination, Jews. All walks of life, the more religious you are, no matter what religion you are, the harder it is to get this from. Because you cannot do easily what the big book says. We have to let go of our own ideas. It doesn't say all oh, religion, actually. Your religious life a lot of times improves our old ideas. The old idea is we're bad getting good. The sin model. The sin model is destructive if you're really an addict. For other people, it works fine. But if you're an addict, the sin model brings you more to the shame 
And the more shame you are, the more impossible it is to accept the first step. And therefore, you can't do the steps. Because the first step does not say we are bad. It says we have a disease. We have a physical allergy accompanied by a mental obsession. If you don't get the doctor's opinion, I'm telling you, you are going to have so much problems. Not the rest of the big book. The doctor's opinion. If you cannot accept the doctor's opinion, you're going to have problems. Just that simple. It's a disease model recovery program. Now, people can get it through their churches, through therapy, whatever. I could not get it that way. I needed a 12-step program. And there's no way, if someone brings me in, that I can't be, I have to be authentic. This is how I got it. What can I tell you? I believe my, I'm a terrible artist, a good human being, but a terrible Today I'm a good human being. No guarantee tomorrow. <laughs> My wife will verify that. I just do awful with the brain. This is the brain and this is like the spinal cord. And right here is a tiny little computer chip. Tiny little computer chip. And in that little computer chip, it's remarkable what's in that computer chip. That tiny little spot. Fight or flight. Fear and anger. Reproduction, meaning sex. Fear, anger, reproduction. Thirst. Eating. And the temperature regulation. You want to not believe in divine intervention? Bill and Bob, before Salier in Canada, came up with the fight or flight concept in the first, especially in the 40s. In 35, they already knew. that this was damaged. They knew it. How can you say that? Chapter 5. It talks about resentment is our number one offender. That's the anger. Then it goes into fear. And then it goes into sex. And the whole program is about thirst. Alcohol. Very few people come into rooms, 12-step programs, that don't have problems with fear and anger. And why do we need the 11th step? It helps the fear. It helps us get to the present. The meditation, it helps us quiet that brain of ours. Fear, anger, reproduction, thirst. So it talks about those three in chapter 5. Don't get too hungry, too angry, too lonely, or too tired. It's all around. 
because without them knowing it, they knew it. That this triggers off apparently some of the same allergic phenomena. Now, people will prove me totally wrong when it works for me. Whether it's true or not, there not, might really not be a God. It might be such a fairy tale. You know, a lot of it sounds like a fairy tale. How do you prove he's God? By saying, you can't prove he's God. You can't. But boy, I feel so much more comfortable when I believe today there's a loving God. So it doesn't matter if there is or isn't. It works for me. And by the way, that day I I had a mini spiritual awakening because my other awakenings over the years have been much more powerful. But we had no essay book back then. It wasn't written. I came in about a year before the essay book was written. We had a brochure. And in that brochure, it said, no sex with And no sex outside your head. And I said to myself, I'm a physician. They're crazy. Masturbation is totally normal. Totally normal. And as I'm saying it, I had my awakening. That for me, masturbation was what all this was. Sex with my wife was using her vagina for masturbation. She wasn't there. I was in orgies in my head. Sex with other people were very masturbatory for the most part. All of a sudden it just occurred to me and at that moment because of AA I knew it was going to work. That all I had to do was for seven months I didn't drink for one day at a time. I knew all I had to do was not masturbate for one day at a time. Eventually, the thoughts started going, leaving. Uh, After 11 months of uh, sex only once a day with my wife, and I look back at it now, because no one taught us. There was no one to tell us what to do. Apparently what happened in my recovery is that I detoxed myself. I went from twice a day sex, and I called my bottom line, if I ever have sex twice in a day, it's a loss of my sobriety, that I was really gradually detoxing, looking back at But by 11 months, my sponsor had lost his sobriety, and the founder of our fellowship had lost his sobriety in a year and a half, and then came back and died with probably 30, who knows how many years. Let's see, uh, 79, and he died a few years ago, 
several letters, A, A, and or whatever. By the way, the way you become an old timer, you know, masturbate or act out for one day at a time you don't die. And you become an old timer. Uh, there were many people that year before me who came in, I sponsored jazz and other people, but many of them have died out. And all of a sudden, it looks like I have the most sobriety of a man. There are women who have more in the world who are active in the program. There might be others there, but who are active in the program. And um, man, it's, it's an awesome joy and responsibility. What's the responsibility that I never believe I'm cured? The problem in this program isn't knowing you're sick, it's thinking you're well. That's why it's important for me to tell my story, tell how gradual it was. And so at 11 months, I was terrified I was going to lose my sobriety like they were. They did. And I knew I couldn't. I couldn't do it. I was so ill. I just knew I couldn't go back there. I knew what was waiting for me. And I did the thing I could not bear doing. I said to my wife, would you mind if we were absent for a while? And the fear impossibility of my saying that to her. And as I tell them stories, I was shocked. She looked at me with such hatred that I had never seen before, ever. And she said, I've had enough sex with you to last me Four children. We were very close, and I saw this hatred. Now, most normal men would see this hatred and know what she meant. So, six weeks later, I said, "Okay, honey, I'm ready. Look what I've accomplished! Wow!" <coughs> now, Patrick Carnes was coming out. I think Out of the Shadows was already written about that time. And, um, but this stuff is starting to come out more and more. And um, after six weeks, I asked her, and she said, no. And I went crazy. Called my sponsor. And said, Jess, can you imagine looking at this program? I'm sober. I look at this, and she won't end abstinence. And as many of you have heard from my tapes, CD, she said, he said, in his loving, gentle way, hey, stupid, you're a sex addict. How the hell do you know when to stop your abstinence? Let God talk through your life. And as I said, you've heard me just this weekend say, you know, 
God was apparently very busy. <laughs> or he fell asleep. I'm not sure which one. But it was almost two years. Almost two years. <coughs> 21 months, but who was counting? <laughs> My wife says almost to the minute you know, don't you? And uh, towards the end of the 21 months, I knew she was never going to have sex with me. And I said, are you willing to stay married? This is a woman I had repeatedly given venereal diseases. <laughs> you know, I'm really not feeling shame. You think something's wrong with me? <laughs> I mean, I'm not. I mean, this is such a miracle. It beats Hanukkah. <laughs> that oil is nothing. I say it all the time for Bible studies. I say, I never believed in miracles. But if he got me sober, parting the Red Sea was easy pickings for him. <laughs> and I surrendered said, we're never going to have sex again. And about three days later, she requested sex. This unbelievable discovery of surrender. The mystical concept of surrender. Uh, Dad, Fix my toy. Look how broken it is. Fix my toy. And the father said, Son, if you don't hand it to me, I can't fix it. Okay. We did it the other day. Let's do it again. Put your hand out there. Real tight. Now open. Do it again. Open. That's surrender. Now my sponsor who taught me that almost 30 years ago also used this and said, that's God. He'll squeeze them until you say, I let go, let go, I give up. He'll squeeze them. I prefer doing it before he squeezes them. <laughs> Not as a punishment. Tonight I'm going to talk about traditions. Why are the traditions so powerful? Especially the second tradition. Because it says we do have a God in the 12-step program. A loving God. As manifested through Albert Conscience. A loving God. Not the God I had who I wait up all evening for my 
kids to come in. This I was convinced for the behavior I was having, God was going to kill my children in car accidents. I was convinced. That's a hell of a God to have. A tyrant, a despot. A being that waits for you to pick your nose and throw it. Hand grenade down. My God loved me. He watched me in the booths. He watched me do everything I did and loved me so much he brought me to the program. How much more love can a God have for me? And as I sometimes talk, if we don't have that God, the evil despot, we have the Santa Claus God. Gimme, gimme, gimme! I call him the sugar daddy God. The, de- the Santa Claus God. Gimme, gimme, gimme! And then if he doesn't give us what we want, we get pissed at him. Huh! I might as well go and do everything. You're not giving me what I want. And we started, she said, I'm ready. By the way, in her Essanon talk, she says, I came to the conclusion that it was okay to love a sex act. And she heard it from a couple we know, and someday maybe you'll have them up here, Terry and Robin. And that's what Robin would say. It's okay to love sex. See, even there you see how shame can upset a relationship. But then I had a problem. I was afraid I'd start abusing her again. First of all, something miraculous happened to me during those 21 months. Another paradox. I had, I felt more like a man than I had ever felt before. I got to see my wife love me even without intercourse. Everything in my life was a man has to have intercourse. What time is it? When we leave question time. Whenever you... Okay. You never say that to me because I just got, got back from Australia and uh, New Zealand for a month. But in Israel, I just got back. That was a few months. They had me down for 55 hours of speaking. After, after 44, I said, no more, no more. So I was complaining. I was so overwhelmed. I was kidding. Crazy! I could see they're after me. They don't appreciate me. Look out! So I call my sponsor, who happens to be Christian, and he said, "Harvey, don't take this wrong, but you know your people are known to want to get good value." (laughs) 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 They had paid. I don't get paid for doing this, but they had paid our airfare. (laughs) They got us an apartment for three weeks. I started to laugh. Only in recovery can people 
know us so well to be able to tell us truths <laughs> that we don't want to hear. <laughs> Isn't laughter Good the healing of laughter? As you know, many of you have known, have heard me talk about how my sponsor had me buy a clown when I first got sober. And to this day now, it used to be in my bedroom, so when I wake up, I see it. Now it's in my meditation room, so when I meditate, it's right there. I have this big ceramic clown. He said, Harvey, what do you do when you go to a circus and you see all the crazy antics a clown does? I said, you laugh? He said, well, you're a, you're a crazy clown. You learn to laugh with those crazy antics. I gave a talk the other day, I guess it was the other night, that a man rather consider himself bad, getting good, than ever think of himself as sick. Our masculinity does never want to think of ourselves as sick. So not only do we get the cultural pressure that we're bad getting good, we get the religious pressure that we're bad getting good rather than sick getting lost. We don't have the chance without the 12-step or therapy or whatever. We don't have the chance. We've been getting this programming since we were kids. So I was afraid I'd abuse her again. And I did something that was impossible for me because uh, a sex therapist early on had explained to us, she had studied with Patrick Carnes for quite a while, she said, you met your wife when she was 17. You had such frequent sex with her that she never had to develop what it felt like to feel sexual. 